If you have a Bible, which I hope you do. Mm. Hello. If you have a Bible, and uh, we're look, going to look at Psalm 150. Uh, well, we're going to read a Psalm 150. We're going to look at lots of different verses, but we're going to read Psalm 150. It will come up on the screen. I'd like us to do something slightly different. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Jason Bever leaving, so we're just going to throw everything out and do whatever we want. It's not too radical. It's quite old-fashioned, really. I, I wondered if we could... Um, all stand and read this together. I know for some of you, you're going, oh no, this is disastrous, but uh, let's do it anyway. Um, it's Psalm 150. The words will come up on the screen. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Excellent. Thank you. Take a seat. Let's just pray together. Father, we direct our hearts towards you. We thank you for everything that's happened already in the service. But now we just take a moment and we direct our hearts to you. No matter what emotional or spiritual or financial condition we find ourselves in, we come now to meditate on truths that speak of your worth, of your value, of who you are. I pray that the Spirit of the living God would take your living word and make it so powerfully meaningful to our lives so that our hearts would be changed, that it would translate into all the relationships that we have, and that there would be a noticeable difference because we have been in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes in life there are uh, questions and things that are just so glaringly obvious. Uh, like redundant questions, embarrassing questions. Let me give you a few examples of things I found. The first one is this picture. This product contains peanuts. It's just ridiculous. The next one, I kind of liked. Beware of pole when reversing. I kept thinking, is there going to be somebody from Poland there? But that was just me. Another one, uh, John, thank you. Do not breathe under the water. These are just absolutely pointless uh, statements and things that are there. This one, next one. And one last one. Now... I just thought they're utterly pointless. Now you're thinking, wait, is he going to say worship is utterly pointless? No, um, not today, I'm not. But I just felt, oh, I'm talking about worship, and it feels as though some of the things that we know about worship are just 
so obvious. Um, kind of, we know what worship is, I suppose, because we know it means to declare worth of something, to attribute worth and value to something, or to put it in biblical terms, to praise God. When we speak, we sing about how good and powerful God is. And so it felt like, oh, it's a bit of a redundant question. What is worship? Who do we worship? Etc. But for the next few minutes, I want us to think about the kind of kingdom value of worship. I don't want us to think about what is our traditional approach to worship. I don't even want us to think about our typical approach to worship. I want us to try and unpack some scriptural principles that I feel God has laid down in his word for his people to follow. So firstly, I think scripture speaks about the priority of worship. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says that, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And very simply this morning, you and I together are priests. And the first function of a priest is to worship God. Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, just before he died, wrote these words. Christian worship is the most momentous, the most glorious, the most urgent activity which a man can ever know in his life. So in other words, Christian worship is not just singing a few songs, or in Matt's case, just one song on repeat. It's good. It's not just a song here to, to warm us up before the message. It's not just singing some songs to make us feel good. It's not just a sing-along. But it's the most significant activity which we can do this side of heaven. And I've been really challenged by this in my prep. Because in my life, in my walk with Jesus, how important does worship have? And I ask you the same question I've asked myself. In my quiet time, do I spend time worshiping God? How important really is worship in my life apart from on a Sunday? And according to the scripture, it should be in the first place. The second thing, and it's another redundant question, is... Who do we worship? Who do we worship? And yes, the answer is Jesus. We worship God. We worship Jesus. Psalm 150 says, praise the Lord, followed by praise God, followed by praise him, praise him, praise him. And all through the psalm with the final lines being praise the Lord. And so, yes, who do we worship? It is a redundant question, for we know we are to praise God, but do we remember we are to praise God without any rival, without any competition? Just praise him. 
You know, when God gave the Ten Commandments, he gave, or he made a statement that, when I was younger, kind of bothered me. And it bothers some people. He gave the commandments, and then he says, For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. And sometimes we kind of get worried about the idea of God being jealous, and we kind of want to make an apology. It doesn't really mean that, and we try and explain it away. But I don't think we should apologize, because God is a jealous God. If you're married, you might get it. I hope you do, actually, if you're married. I hope you do get it. For we can get jealous. I mean, I, I get jealous. You see, I'm married to a beautiful woman. And there can be moments of jealousy. For the thought of sharing her with anyone else in an intimate level makes me jealous. Now, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Because relational jealousy is healthy. And the Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, he is to get our total admiration, our total adoration, our absolute devoted praise. Isaiah Chapter 42, verse 8 declares, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor will I share my praise. He wants it all. And he deserves it all. And that kind of brings me to the redundant question number three. Does he deserve it all? Well, back to Psalm 150, this time verse 2, it says, For his acts of power. He deserves all praise, all honor, all glory because of his acts of power. You know, every so often I'm really fortunate, I get to go skiing with work. I'm a teacher, and you do a lot of teaching on the ski slopes. And when I'm in the mountains, um, and all is white, I can do nothing but praise. The pupils absolutely hate going on a chairlift with me because I just sit there going, look at this, look at that, look at that. Surely you can't still believe there's no creator. There's no one. What about the first cause argument and the big bang and all of this? And surely they all try and get off as early as possible. And I honestly don't think they get it. Because you just look out and you go, wow, it's incredible. And that's the kind of response God wants when, from us when we observe creation. For us to go, wow, that's beautiful. And, and God, God who loves us made that. And so the intricacies of creation really help us appreciate the immensity of the creator. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So as we look kind of outward and upward, we should say, Praise the Lord for his mighty acts of power. But we can also just look inward. For we, us, are a mighty act also. For God formed us. The Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
some more fearfully than others. I'm sure you know that your body has about 37.2 trillion cells in it. I can't kind of get my head around that. And in a single cell of your body, you have the DNA, which basically is the blueprint, is the instruction manual that tells the cell how to act. It's a set of instructions for us. Now, if you were to take one human cell and translate the DNA code into text, into writing, into kind of written book form, it would produce about 4,000 large books. That's just one cell, enough to kind of fill the whole of this back area. I kind of, in my head, that's kind of big, isn't it? That's just one cell. So if you were to translate 37.2 trillion cells of your body into written information, it would fill the Grand Canyon 40 times over. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. So as we look outward at creation, we should say, oh, praise the Lord. When we look inward, we should say, praise the Lord. And yet the mightiest, maybe, act of all, it isn't creation, it's redemption. The mightiest act of all is God coming to earth and saving us. 2 Corinthians 9.15, the Apostle Paul, in thinking of that act, he says, Thanks be to God, or praise be to God, for his indescribable gift. So he deserves our praise. For his mighty acts of creation, redemption, preservation, provision, all of that. So we praise God because of what he has done but we also praise him for who he is. Now, this is really important. The other stuff is also really important, but this is really important. Because sometimes in our life, we forget of all the things he's done. We can get so hurt in life, or so lost, so scared, so anxious, so lost in the darkness and the blackness, we can't see and remember everything that he has done. All we see is our circumstances and the kind of bad stuff that's going on. We can be going through a trial and feel absolutely overwhelmed by a situation, by our circumstances. And we can't see our blessings, let alone count our blessings. And it's that, at that moment we turn to the second reason to worship, a reason that supersedes all other reasons. Because we praise him just for who he is, for his attributes, for all of his omnis. We praise him because he's all-powerful, because he's ever-present, because he's all-knowing, and yet he still loves me. That's who he is. Back to Psalm 150, still verse 2. We praise him according to his surpassing greatness. And this word praise, if we 
our English word comes from the Latin word, which means price. And when we're declaring praise, we're declaring the value of God, irrespective of what is going on, irrespective of what we are experiencing. There's a story of a man who was visiting a church, and it was quite a formal church with a formal liturgy. And there was a part in the service called the Eucharist Liturgy. And at that point in the service, people were um, on the kneelers in the pews, and they were on their knees, uh, the knees, on their knees kneeling. That's another redundant phrase. On their knees kneeling, um, and they were singing Hallelujah. And this visitor, this man, he noticed one woman, and she had her arms raised heavenward, and she was singing Hallelujah. And what caught his attention wasn't that her hands were raised or that she was singing, but it's that her hands, they were all kind of twisted and, and crippled and diseased and kind of crumpled up as they were raised in the air. And he was looking at this woman with those hands raised, thinking, dear lady, how? How can you, with that kind of suffering, lift up your arms and say, hallelujah? And the reason she can lift her hands is because she's praising God for who he is. She wasn't praising God for what she can get out of him. She wasn't praising God for what he had done. And for us, we don't praise God because he makes us happy. We don't praise God because of all the things he has done. We simply praise him because of who he is. I'm sure you've heard the story of the two wee boys in a morning service and the offering went round. And one wee boy said to the other wee boy, I got 10 pence out of that. How much did you get? How much did you get? And I know that can be my attitude sometimes in worship. That I didn't get much out of the service. But you know, spiritually, it doesn't matter what you got out of it. But it matters what God got out of it. For we worship not for our blessing, not for our benefit. We worship so he might be praised. We have come to bless him, to praise him, to honor him, to magnify him, to exalt him. We have come to worship him and him alone. We don't come for our benefit. We come because of who he is. Do you come to get? And so maybe you go away saying, I didn't get much from today's service. Maybe you've come to give yourself to God in worship and you do leave blessed. Well, praise God, that's just a bonus. But that's not why we should come. We come so he will be lifted up, that his name will be known to the ends of the earth. Thirdly, let me just speak about the practice of worship. 
You know, we know that God deserves our worship, but how does God describe, or how does Scripture describe our worship? We could say a lot here, but I just want to say a couple of things. The Scripture says, in one word, I suppose, just to sum it up, that our worship should be wholehearted. That it involves the whole of our heart. All of your being. Psalm 103 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord my soul. All my inmost being. Praise his holy name. And you might recognize that from Matt Redman's song, 10,000 Reasons. Where he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I'll worship your holy name. It's that line, sing like never before. And our worship is to be wholehearted. And we worship God with our bodies. You know, some Christians stand to sing, some lift their hands in praise. Some might want to use flags, some might want to dance. Now, to use flags and to dance is not, traditional or typical for us here at Sutton, but it's not unscriptural. It's just not what we're used to. And if that aids your worship, then worship. And why do we stand? Why do some folk kneel? Why do some folk lift their hands? Why do people dance? That one really confuses me. It's because we're showing, we're witnessing with our whole body who God is and what he means. We're surrendering every part of ourselves. And also wholehearted worship, not just our bodies, but also our heart. For the bodily movement of a worshiper in our hands or our feet It's not that important. But the movement of our soul towards God is important. The movement of your soul to God in love, in wonder, in praise is important. And it really should be impossible for me to come to a service and be unmoved. And yet it does happen. The reality is it shouldn't. And often I think that lies with my problem. So regardless of whether I lift my hands or fold my hands, or whether I sit or whether I dance, my heart should never remain in the same place. P.T. Forsyth, an English theologian, said this, Worship is the soul's breathless gratitude to God. Are you breathless with gratitude? For if we are, we would not remain unmoved. I'm going to close with a story, and I promise I am closing with this story. Years ago, there was a little boy who lived out in the country, and he had never been in his life to a circus. He'd wanted to go to the circus, but he'd never been. He'd heard what a circus was like, but he'd never been. And he heard that a circus was coming to town, and he said, Dad, Daddy, please can I go to the circus? 
Please, can I go on Saturday to the circus? And I've always wanted to go. And his dad agreed and said, well, if you finish all your chores on Saturday morning, then Sunday afternoon you can go, Saturday afternoon, not, not, not Sunday, not on the Sabbath, surely not. Saturday afternoon you can go down and you can go to the circus. So come Sunday morning, he did all his chores, he finished all his chores, so his father gave him a pound to pay the entry fee to the circus, and we know how long ago this story is, if it was just a pound, because today a pound will get you nothing, it's about popcorn is like 20 pounds now, isn't it? So anyway, it was a pound to get into the circus back then, so he takes the pound note and he runs towards town, and he sees out in the streets people gathering together. They're lining the streets for there's this parade coming. And he lines the streets with everyone and he sees the caged animals coming. They're on trailers going by and there are acrobats, there are jugglers, there's a marching band. And then finally at the end of the parade there's this clown kind of dancing and clowning around. And the boy was just so excited. And he walked down to the clown and since the clown was the last person in the parade he gave the clown the pound note and then he went home he had never been to a circus he thought the parade was the circus but the parade was just leading them to the circus tent where the circus would take place but he paid his pound went home and missed the actual event. And I can't help but think that so often we come to church exactly like that little boy. We come for the parade. There's this parade of worship songs and maybe some prayers and maybe a talk and then some more songs. And then we go home and we miss the main event which is an encounter with the living God. Everything else is just part of the parade. The main event is where my heart connects with the living God in intimacy. Where my heart connects with God in meaningful worship and praise. That's the main event. But do we miss it? So, maybe the worship team can come back up. So I ask you, as I ask myself, are you content with the parade? Are you okay with just the parade? Or are you wanting the real thing to meet with the living God.